Last week, we started a series on the life of Jonah. So if you weren't here last week, you're, you're okay, because we'll catch you up pretty quick. Uh, we'll be in that for probably a couple months, um, even though it's only four chapters. Uh, figure a couple Sundays each chapter will take two months, so ballpark, that's where we are. Jonah is, I think, a very misunderstood Bible character. Uh, the book is very controversial because a lot of people say it's an allegory. Um, a lot of uh, Bible scholars sometimes want to discredit it because it's so wild and crazy that things like that could ever happen. And yet, um, our Savior, Jesus Christ, on two different occasions refers to the story of Jonah. So if it was credible enough for Jesus to give it authenticity, it's credible enough for us to give it authenticity as well. What we talked about last week was really trying to understand Jonah. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. He is a prophet to Israel. God has come to him and asked him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is 500 miles away, and Nineveh is the stronghold of the enemies of Jerusalem and the Jews. they, They were brutal in the way that they dealt with people. And so basically God has come to Jonah and said, I want you to go to your enemies, to the heart of your enemies, and I want you to preach so that they could be saved from destruction. And that's a tough call. Because if Jonah goes, the Jews are going to hate him. If he goes and they reject his message, the Assyrians are going to hate him. And so Jonah, and, and I didn't talk about this last week, but if you look at the trade routes during the time, what happens is Jonah goes down and he heads towards Joppa, and literally the main trade route that he would have traveled down from Jerusalem, what happens is there's a fork in the road. And at a fork in the road, one goes this way to Joppa, one goes that way to Nineveh. And at that crossroads in his life, Jonah decides, I'm going to get as far away from Jerusalem as I can. And he heads on a ship all the way to a place called Tarshish. Tarshish is at the end of the known world at that time. Basically, Jonah takes a 500-mile trip from Jerusalem to Nineveh and turns it into a 2,500-mile trip when it's all said and done. Last week, we left with the idea that Jonah is uh, in a boat and in a ship, and the waves come up, and Jonah is asleep in the boat, and they finally wake Jonah up, and they tell him to pray to his God. But what's interesting is, At no point in the story does Jonah pray. And so the people are, hey there, Um, the people are, it's all right. If you want to come up and do this, that's okay with me. No, no, no. (laughs) I can sit. Yeah, never let children on a stage with adults. I learned that a long time ago. Nobody, you will lose it for sure. But anyway, so Jonah ends up heading that way. The storm comes out, and the next thing you know, there's a big problem because uh, the people are throwing cargo over. They're trying to get the thing righted. They can't, they can't. And, they, and so we ended last week with the idea of they wake Jonah up, and they say two really good questions. Who are you, and what have you done? And so that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. So, uh, And I got my clicker back, so I am back in control. It was in my coat pocket. I'm going to try to leave it up here. Uh, So anyway, here's what it said. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. 
So they asked him, they said, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah said, look, I'm the reason that the storm's coming up. And they said, please, please, please tell us what to do. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm is going to come upon you. This morning, here's the, here's the, here's the focus I want to shift to this morning on this story. Jonah's in crisis. Okay? Jonah is running from God. Jonah has created a world around him in which the people around him are being affected because he's running from God. And these people are going to try to help Jonah, who doesn't want to help himself. So this morning, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the idea of how do we help people in crisis. Because I think there's a lot of, of, of lessons in this story that help us because most of us either know we're either in crisis ourselves or we know someone in crisis and we're trying to help someone in crisis. And this morning, if you, as we look at this part of the story, I think you're going to see something that will help you or give you some insight as you try to help somebody else or maybe you're the one who needs to be helped. But what you see in this story is they wake Jonah up. They, they come to Jonah and say, hey, look, tell us what to do. Tell us what to do. And here's what's interesting. Jonah knows what to do. Jonah looks at him and says, it's really easy. Throw me overboard. Now, here's a couple questions for you, though. Because this is what you often see with people in crisis. They know what they need to do. They know what they need to do. But here's what's ironic. They want Jonah to, they want, Jonah wants them to do it for him. Think about this for a moment. If, if Jonah knew the solution to the problem was, throw me overboard, why didn't Jonah just jump off the boat? Why not? I mean, I'm the source of it, right? I'm the source of all of this difficulty. So here, guys, I'll solve your problem. I'm jumping overboard. People in crisis don't do that. People in crisis don't care about how their actions are affecting you. People in crisis often want you to make decisions for themselves that they, can't, they don't want to make for themselves. And instead of Jonah taking, taking some ownership here and saying, look, this is my fault, I will solve the problem, I'm going overboard, it's all okay, and jumping overboard, Jonah looks at him and says, you... Throw me overboard. You do for me what I'm not willing to do for myself. Here's another interesting point about at this point in the story. Jonah is saying here, it is better for me to die than it is to follow what God wants me to do and go to Nineveh. It would be better to die than to obey God. That's literally what he's saying. Because Jonah's at a point where He doesn't want to obey God. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. So Jonas here looks at this thing and says, look, I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. You know what? I really don't care. I'm not going to solve the problem. You solve the problem by throwing me overboard. And I think it's fascinating that here it is. It's a simple solution. Jonah jumps over the sh- overboard. These people are not faced. But these people are trying to help someone in crisis. So what do they do? What do you do next? Notice what it says. I love this. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. 
But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. These were seasoned sailors. So they don't want to be responsible. They don't want to make the tough call to take a man's life. So they say, look, let's just get him off the boat. Let's get to shore. We'll throw him on the island or wherever we are on the coast, and we'll get back on, on the thing. So they figure out a way, and they say, let's keep doing what we've been doing. And guess what? It just gets worse. Is that not true with people in crisis? You try to soften it as much as you can, and the more you do it, the worse it gets. And these guys are rowing as hard as they can, and they're, they're pitching stuff overboard, and they're turning sails and pulling rudder, and they're doing everything they can to try to get him close to shore so they say, we'll throw him over then. And guess what? If you keep doing more of the same, you get the same result. And so these guys are ultimately faced with the ultimate choice, and notice what it says they do. And I think this, is, this just boggles my mind. Then they cried out to the Lord. God's prophet is not the guy who's praying. The pagans are. The people who don't know the God of Israel are crying out to the God of Israel. And they're saying, please, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Look, God, we don't know who you are. We know you're the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. We've heard people talk about you. We don't believe in you because we have our gods, and you're not our God. But listen, this guy apparently has ticked you off, and we don't want to be a part of this. So whatever you do, don't look. If you can do this to him, we don't even want to think about what you do to us because this is actually your guy, and we're not your people. So don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. You see, they saw Jonah as innocent because there had been no trial. No one had declared him guilty. They were going to have to throw somebody overboard based on what this guy said. And they wanted no part of it. And notice what it says. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. Now, I don't know what this looked like. I don't know if they, like, tied him up and threw him overboard. I don't know if they got him to walk the plank. I don't know if they said, hey, sit on the rail for a minute. Boop, you're gone. I I don't know how they did this. But this was a gut-wrenching decision for them. To take a human life. If you've ever watched Deadliest Catch, okay, you're like, really? Yes, really. If you've ever watched Deadliest Catch, you know how important it is when somebody goes over the rail, how fast they have to get them out of there. Because in the Arctic up there, I mean, you know, even, I mean, unless they're in one of those suits, and even in those suits, they only have a certain amount of time. But when they go, you know, they pull people out, and, and anyway, it's like one of the deadliest professions in the world, so deadliest catch. Uh, but anyway, um, you, by the way, if you ever watch it, you'll never eat crab the same again. Um, you know, because you'll realize how hard they are to catch. But anyway, and again, I know it's a show, I'm not naive, but... When they go over, and so I can't imagine throwing this guy overboard. I just can't imagine how traumatic it was for them. Then notice what happened. The sea grows calm. Now listen, I don't care who your God is. When this guy's told you he's running from his God and his God's the land of the, uh, the God of the land and the sea, and you throw a guy and, and, and this storm, and you've done everything you know and your power to do, and all of a sudden 
you throw this guy overboard and, and it's calm seas? You ain't never going to forget that. And notice what it says. At this time, the men greatly feared the Lord. By the way, this is the third time in this passage fear has been mentioned. So it's interesting here, you know, before they feared the storm, and then they feared what Jonah said, now all of a sudden they're fearing God. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, I don't know what this means. Um, some people believe that actually the Midrash, which is an ancient text, actually says that these guys actually got, took on the boat, went back to the shore, went to Jerusalem, and became proselytes. That's just all speculation. I, I don't know. Most probably what I think, is that these guys just added God to their list of gods. But they never forgot what they saw this God do. And it's interesting because if they were genuine converts, the crazy thing is, Jonah, the prophet of God, never got to see the people that were converted because of his ministry. So the first people that actually turned to God in this story... The prophet's not even around to see it because of his disobedience. So that's, that, and when, that's all the far we're going to go today. We're going to jump into chapter 2 next week. But um, a couple of things that, that, that lessons for us. Here, here, here's the first one as we talk about it. Often people in crisis know what they need to do. Look, if you're here this morning running from the Lord, here's the bottom line. You know what you need to do. Right? You know what you need to change. You know what behavior or habit you're doing. And, and you know, honestly, if you keep going down this road, it doesn't end well. There is no scenario in which it ends well. And yet you keep going because you know what you need to do. There's no question. You know, that's the thing. People are like, well, why don't you preach about this and this and this and this and this? Here's why. Because when I preach about this little specific thing here, if that's not your thing, then you excuse the other stuff. So I would much rather God ring your bell than me. And when God starts tugging on your heart, going, you know what? He's talking about what you're doing right now. I don't know what that is, but you do. These people didn't know what was going on with Jonah, but Jonah did. And, and that's what I often find is people who are in crisis who know what they need to do. It's not a matter of them doing it. They want... They just think that they're the exception, that they'll get away with it, that, that it will be okay. And often, you care more about the person's life than they do. I mean, again, Jonah didn't even care about his own life at this point. I think as you see the story of Jonah unfold, here's what you're going to find. Jonah wasn't afraid of death at all. In fact, Jonah thought it would be better to die than it was to go to the enemies and have them turn to God. And Jonah's big thing here is this, and a great lesson, we'll get to it when we get to chapter 4. But here's the thing with Jonah. Jonah had no problem experiencing the grace of God. But he didn't want his enemies to experience the grace of God. And Jonah, in this story, what happens is, I don't think Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh and have them kill him. I think Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh because they would turn to God and God would spare him. So Jonah's alternative is, rather than do God and allow God to show his grace to Nineveh, take my life. I don't want to be a part of that. 
I will die this way. Let's do it that way. Let's make sure that we can do it that way. And often there's what you find. People in crisis, they really don't care about all the people around them. And, and, that, and that's what you see here. Jonah's like, you know what? Hey, if I die, it's no big deal. But, but the point is, Jonah, if you're really concerned for the people around you, jump off the boat. But what you often find in people of crisis, they do not care about the people around them. They do not care about their actions. They are apathetic. My wife had a, and I ended up with a discussion last week. Once in a while, she'll question me on what I said. Um, not often on Sundays, but I mean, you know, and we got into the discussion about why was Jonah asleep? Was it because he was depressed? Or was it because he was apathetic? It was an interesting discussion, and I was right. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, but I mean, honestly, you know, why? Why? Because, you see, he didn't care about the people around him. Because if he did, the answer is simple. Then jump off the boat. But you see, Jonah wasn't willing to do what he needed to do, so he was hoping somebody else would do it for him. And that's what you'll find with people in crisis. They want somebody else to make the tough decisions for them. And most of the time they want to argue with you about the decision. Because they want to keep trying what they've been doing. And that doesn't work. And that's the second issue is this. Is you have to be very, very careful. Because people in crisis are often enabled by well-meaning people. Let's say it again. People in crisis are often enabled by well-meaning people. You see, here's the thing. When they kept rowing, and, and the word, the, the Hebrew word is fascinating. It has this idea of they just did everything in their power to, to effort to get to shore and everything that they knew how to do, and they couldn't do it, and they couldn't do it, and they couldn't do it. While they're rowing to shore, trying to get Jonah off the boat, who is calm? Jonah. Why? Because Jonah's problem is not Jonah's problem. It's their problem. And they are enabling Jonah by letting him stay on the boat, and they're going to do all of this stuff. They're going to keep doing the same thing they've been doing. I watch this all the time with people. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. Look, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, they tried. In fact, it didn't get better, it got worse. And that's what you often, often find. You see, at some point, the problem has to become Jonah's, not the people who are trying to help. Okay, you know, let me talk to parents for a minute. I can't tell you how often I see this play out. Where you don't allow your kids' problems to be your kids' problems. And you think you're helping them, but you are hurting them. You are crippling them. Because as long as it is not their problem, it is your problem, then they will never take responsibility for what they're up against. The sooner, mom and dad, you can start making it their problem, 
the more you will start to see success or at least some progress one way or the other towards what's going on. I can't stress this enough because I watch parents who every time the kid gets in trouble, they try to run interference. So if there's a problem at school, they're having meetings with teachers or emails or texts or whatever else. Instead of going, wait a minute. My kid got his, my kid failed that test. Let me tell you how you handle that, mom and dad. You look at your kid and say, looks like you're going to have to figure it out and do better. You know why? Because let's say they're eighth grade. In five years, that's what's going to happen at college. In fact, nobody's going to care whether or not they do that, fail the test or not. Because if you fail the test, you have to take class over. If you have to take class over, we get more money. College continues to grow. At what point do you look at the kid and go, you know what? It's your problem. You failed the test. You get with the teacher. You figure it out. Oh, but that teacher's so hard. Time out, mom and dad. What are you trying to do? You're going to run interference for him for the whole time and go, oh, you know what? Let me go talk to your boss because he's just being too hard on you. You laugh, but what do you expect? What result do you expect, mom and dad? What result do you expect when you're enabling the kid by continually going in and running interference? And the older they get, the less involved you need to be. Because your job as a parent is to produce independent people. People who are responsible and independent and be able to handle life on their own. And the more you run interference for them, you know, well, you don't understand it, you know, the, you know, I can't believe that the teacher handled it that way. I can't believe the coach won't let them play. Don't they know that they have a really busy schedule? Oh, yeah, that's going to work really good with your boss. Excuse me, boss, but I have a really busy schedule, so I wasn't able to do the job that you've hired me to do. And I watch people enable, and you think you're helping. And again, some of you do it out of guilt. You're like, I want to make it easy for my kids. I want to make it easy for my kids. You're not helping them. You're not helping them. In our household growing up, I was somewhat, believe it or not, I was kind of the hard line drill instructor kind of parent. I'm not saying that's a way to parent. It's just the way that I learned and the way I did it most of the time. And I'll never forget there was a situation where, um, and Gene was, the, Gene was the good cop, bad cop, bad cop, good cop. Okay, That, that, that's, that was the role we played. And um, Jimmy had done something. And since he's not here, I can talk about it. He had done something. I don't remember what he did. But we had tried a whole bunch of things to change some behavior, and it hadn't worked, hadn't worked, hadn't worked. And we knew that his currency, the thing that really rung his bell, was, was talking. He, he had a great ability when he got in trouble to talk his way out of it. So, um, so for him, conversation was a big deal. He would always talk and try to figure out what he needed to do and what hoops he needed to jump through. And Gene, whatever he did, and I don't remember what it was, but she, maybe she remembered. But whatever it was he did, I mean, it was like, it was up there. So she decided to go silent, which to him is like, that's a knife in the heart kind of thing. And he did that for two days. And he'd come in and say, Mom, can we talk? No. Mom, I love you. I know. I mean, that, it was like cold, hard. I'm in my office working one day. And he walks in my office and we talk, closes the door. He goes, Dad, he said, I don't know what's going on with Mom. He said, I don't know what to do. Now, my chance to be good cop, right? <laughs> I looked at him and I said, son, I said, I've been married to a woman for a lot of years. 
I said, you need to know that what you did is brand new territory. I have never been in that territory because I'm smarter than that. I said, so as best I can say to you is, you are on your own here, and you've got to go figure it out. As I said, i got no help for you here. And he finally figured it out, and he never went down that road again. But it was one of those things where it was like, you know what? I wasn't going to enable him. I wasn't going to help him. And, and I can't stress this enough. So often what happens is people go in, and you're just like the guys on a boat. You're trying harder and harder and harder to help somebody who's got to, it's got to become their problem at some point. By the way, if you know the story, when does Jonah, this is going to fascinate you next week, when does Jonah finally turn it around? When it's his problem for three days. For three days. This is how stubborn this guy is. For three days, he has to sit in the belly of a fish going, wonder what I ought to do to get out of here. And he finally comes to a conclusion of, let's pray. Would it take you three days in the belly of a fish with dead, rotting stuff to start to pray? I mean, that's where we are. That's what it took for it to become his problem. And some of you, here's what's happening. You're not allowing it to become the problem of the person you're trying to help. And you keep trying to get harder and harder and harder and harder. Because here's the thing. What do they ultimately have to do? A very hard thing. If you're going to help somebody in crisis, here's what you need to know. It is not for the faint of heart. Because at some point, you're going to have to do some very, very hard things. And when you do those hard things, nobody around you is going to understand. Friends, in some cases family, are going to become your biggest critics and stab you in the back and do all kinds of things. Because what happens often is when you try to help somebody in crisis, at some point there comes a crossroads in which you have to stop and say, enough is enough. Where you say, enough is enough. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to pull up there. Hi. (laughs) Mom, relax. (laughs) And all of us who have had them remind, remember this. Um, Yeah, sometimes I'll tell you about the children's sermon where my kids told the congregation I was drinking beer. Um, poor Liz um, I mean Jimmy was convinced my dad drinks beer my dra- or no it was um, what was um, um, was it you or was it Joan it was you yeah Liz is doing a Joan sermon and, and Jimmy's like my dad drinks beer my dad and the more or it was Josh why you two and the more she argued with them the more adamant they became I get home and I said what in the world are you talking about you know, your dad's sitting around drinking beer all the time. And he goes, Dad, you do root beer. You drink root beer all the time. And I was like, oh. well, clarify that for the congregation next week, would you please? Um, they think I'm a lush. But anyway, <laughs> I got on that. You've got to do the hard things. If you're going to really help somebody, you've got to do the hard thing. In this case, these guys had to physically go over and throw Joan off the boat. 
Unfortunately, sometimes with your kids, your grandkids, your friends, neighbors, relatives, if you're really going to help them, you have to do some really hard things. You go, well, I just don't understand. You have to do the hard things. Well, but it's easier if... Here's what's interesting. As long as Jonah was in the boat, there was chaos. When they removed Jonah, they were calm, and Jonah's world turned into chaos. You see, when they did the hard thing, and it became Jonah's problem, yeah, you know, if you're in a family and you've done this, and some of you know what I'm talking about, where you've had to make a hard decision for a family member and watch their world implode, and you've watched how that has impacted you because it still impacts you, and you want to jump in and rescue. But the reality of it is you're not helping, you're enabling when you do that. You have to let them have the full brunt of their decisions. In addiction counseling, they call this the bottom line. You have to get somebody to the bottom line where they realize and they take ownership. And as long as you're running interference, they can't take ownership. And moms and dads, as long as you're running interference for your kids, your kids are going to be dependent upon you. And you go, oh, I just don't want them to grow up. Well, you know what? The whole idea of parenting, Genesis chapter 2, leave, weave, and cleave. Your goal as a parent is to let them go. That's your goal. And if you'll think about it, the whole parenting process is that of letting them go. From the time that you let them go, and you're, they stand up. Well, first of all, they start crawling. And they don't crawl to you. They crawl away from you. And then when they walk, they don't walk to you. They walk away from you. And then, you know, you poor parents who have to teach kids how to drive. And turn them loose in that car for the first time. Remember, they graduate and they go off and do their college, trade school, career, whatever it is they go and do. And then if, if marriage is part of it, see, run away from. See? <laughs> Mom, you're doing great. <laughs> and Grandpa Stan, there we go. <laughs> This is it, folks. You know? Some of you are looking at it going, you know, some of you are looking at it going, wow, you know, a child who continually runs away from the parents. It's a process. And sometimes you have to do the hard things. And some of you are trying to help somebody right now, and that's your, that's your hurdle. You're, afraid, you keep, you're like the guys on the ship. You just keep rowing, 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 hoping it'll change because you've got to do the hard thing. And here's the last thing. At this point in the story, God is glorified through the actions of pagans. Not through the actions of his prophet. You see, the big picture in the story is the grace of God. The grace of God to Jonah, the grace of God to these people. And it's interesting to me, when they, when they throw him overboard, what do they do? They turn it all over to God. 
You get that? They prayed, God, we're putting him in your care, God. We're trusting you, God. You have to take care of it. Jonah, you're out of here. God, please help us, help us, help us. Becomes calm and they go, you know what? I don't know about that Yahweh Hebrew Jewish God. But all I know is what I just saw. And this particular story is going to end up turning out well. Sometimes the stories do and sometimes the stories don't. But here's what I found. When you turn it over to God in the end, God is always honored and glorified. It may be what God does in your life, in your growth to be able to do the hard things. It may be in in what God does in the lives of other people around them. Um, But it's hard. And some of you are in situations where you're trying to help somebody. And it's tough. And you're trying everything you know how to do. Can, Can I suggest to you, genuinely, turn it over to God and let their problem become their problem? As my kids would grow up, and I would have to discipline them and make some hard calls and do some things, one of the things I always asked my kids at the end of it, I said, okay, do you understand why I'm doing what I'm doing? I really didn't care what their answer was at that point. I hope that they got it, but if they didn't get it, that's okay. That was their problem, not mine. I would explain that again. I said, secondly, you know they love you and care about you. Yep, okay, we're done. We're done. Well, if you really love me, you would. No, 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 no. No. Run that guilt trip down some other road. It doesn't stop at this heart. Okay? It's your problem. You created this mess. You have to figure your way out of it. And my wife will tell you this. If there's anything she instills in five-year-olds that I think should be, if you're going to get a tattoo, here's your tattoo. Okay? I'm not a tattoo person, but tattoo this on your brain if you want. Choices have consequences. When you as a parent soften the consequences, you hurt, you don't help. You produce dependent children, not independent children. Choices have consequences. She teaches them good choices, good consequences. Bad choices, bad consequences. Pretty simple math. But I watch a lot of parents, good, well-meaning parents, who run interference, who enable, and their kids are not learning. Bad choices have bad consequences. They're learning bad choices, convince mom or dad to run interference for me, I can come out okay. What they don't realize is short-term, yes, long-term, no. Because you're going to get into a workplace and think you can make bad choices and they can come out well. The real world doesn't work like that. The real world. Ultimately, bad choices have bad consequences. Sometimes, again, it's years. Just like, you know, it's fun for me right now. I love this time of year. Why? Because you're driving by fields, and what do you see? It'll stop popping up, right? Right? It's the beginning of the story. What if I went out there and started harvesting corn? You go, it's crazy. You're not going to harvest corn yet. You're not going to get beans yet. They've got to grow. Sowing and reaping. 
You planted one seed, you're going to reap a lot. Lord willing. Weather permitting. Chemicals all right. Everything all done right. You know, you know what I mean? You jump through all the hoop. Sow a little now. Reap a lot later. I can't stress it enough. If you're one of those people right now who you're in crisis, you know what you need to do. Fix it. Don't force other people to help you fix it. You go to somebody who can help you and you say, "This is tell me what I need to do. And you get some godly counsel of people who can guide you to get you on the right track. Those of you helping somebody, turn it over to the Lord. Be willing to make the hard decisions. You go, you know how much sleep I'll lose? Unfortunately, yes. And they're done now. I've had nights that I stayed awake all night because of a situation where I had to make some really hard decisions. But in the end, God was glorified, and uh, I watched God use it, even though it was hard and it was a terrible price to pay. I end with this. Helping someone in crisis is not for the faint of heart. It's going to require brutal honesty sometimes some very tough decisions. In the end, God can use any situation for his glory. But often, people in crisis have to hit a bottom line in order for them to move past the crisis. Our job is to provide tough love that is sometimes necessary for them to see what they cannot see clearly. Let God use you. But don't enable and make it easier. Don't make their problem your problem. So that's some lessons from Jonah that we can all benefit from this week. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Now, there are some of us here who are trying to help people who, Lord, in all candor, know what they need to do, but they just refuse to do it. And Lord, for those situations where we have to really draw some tough lines and make some tough choices, give us the grace and strength to do that which honors you and that which is right. Lord, may we do it in in, in a loving way. Lord, may we do it in a way that's true to you. And Lord, when it is all said and done, may the people who we try to help come to a saving knowledge of you, Lord, And if they don't, if they can't, then, Lord, for those who uh, are around, may they come to know you and use us. Lord, uh, those who are struggling, help them to do what's right. Since we ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.